Stargate Voyager. I think we're looking again at a lost technology. And it was this ancient apocalypse 12,800 years ago that wiped that from the human memory banks. Why were these ancient elongated skulled peoples or humanoids of Malta living underground? Now I believe we're talking prior to 9700 BC for the original construction of the Sphinx. And they were what some people have called giants, probably no more than seven to eight feet tall. And those giants have been pulled out of American mounds. Whether it's the colossal statue heads that have been unearthed, to all the strange artifacts you've been showing in the museums, to some of the strange features they seem to possess, the more I learn about the Olmec culture, uh, really the more fascinated I become. Well, I'm excited to be joined by a special guest today. Uh, my guest is Phil Corbett um, from one of my favorite um, Twitter or X accounts. It's called Ancient Alternative View. I've been following Phil for several years now, and it's awesome to finally uh, have a, a discussion with him about everything ancient and alternative. So, Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. The honor to meet you finally and someone that I've looked up to for a very long time. Thank you for going onto these sites and taking photos of the hallmarks as you've done many, many times. It's an absolute honor to be here with you. I'm an ex-Royal Naval Engineer. I became an all-arms commando and traveled the world as an engineer. And the sites that globally you get to see with your own eyes change your view historically. When you go out and do your own physical evidence research, I was very lucky early on around 10 years ago to meet, you know, Chuck and um, ancient history criticisms and him. And I designed a team of 18 people now that globally travel and document these hallmarks in an A to Z catalogue that's free as well for people that want it. And this looks at a set of hallmarks that globally appear on all of our ancient temples and megalithic structures and we started a to z sort of putting them into a dictionary and encyclopedia to categorize them and the different variants of them that we see throughout these temples and we've categorized them as in you know you've got bevel blocks and nubs that people well know with that, we've also now been, you know, trying to look at a different hallmark that people may or may not be aware of that thousands of studies have been done on by specific researchers worldwide. And that's the application of harmonics and archaeoacoustics within these structures, which personally I think uncategorically shows that there was engineering skill within these temples beyond just throwing a few blocks together and a few hallmarks that appear worldwide. And I think they tie together very nicely, Derek. What a great opening. It's a pleasure to be with you. If listeners or watchers are on uh, Twitter or X, definitely go give a follow to Phil at Ancient Alternative View, an amazing channel. He's always uh, tweeting or retweeting uh, everything ancient alternative history, all these sites that we're going to talk about. And Phil, I'm just really intrigued with your story because you live in the London area. Um, you're an ex-Navy Royal Marine. I mean, man, the stories you could share. Uh, one of my first questions for you is, 
when you were traveling abroad, was there a, a specific site that was your favorite that really just caught your attention and really made you go down that rabbit hole? That was actually on a family holiday in 2004. And I went across to Turkey. And unbeknown to me, I was taking, well, basically a family tour, a tour to a place called Turtle Beach. And it's where you can watch baby turtles born and so on and so forth. But along the river system that you go to, you get what's called in mainstream history, the Lycian rock cut tombs, which as you travel past on a boat or situated about 150 meters up in a mountain system, which seemed to be directly imprinted into like a 3D system within the mountain. And all the research that I'd done, and I was sort of really coming out of engineering at that point, you know, really finding my way within the Marines. And I started asking myself, how how on earth, if that is a tomb, and it, was it 150 meters up? in the side of a mountain and it continues around that mountain and then the physical evidence started to sort of outweigh to me what the written narrative was why would you build a tomb there like that and how many of them there are that as you sail past it on the river system and you look up at it it almost stares out at you and says look at me like what the Giza Plateau does. It's that magical. And it said to me that something here engineering-wise is amiss. And everything at that level seems to be marked down as a tomb when people don't really understand what's going on. So I started doing studies into, you know, the so-called quote-unquote what people call tombs and seeing whether I could notice this same sort of technology and then you can you can see these rock cut megaliths all over the world that expose this kind of well i use the word technological aspect of engineering that we don't understand is there something applied to the stone was there something else used because you know you could look at examples like yangshan quarry forget the megalith that's actually standing there and the, the whole three of them are thirty-two thousand six hundred tons look at what isn't there how was that moved? How were they going to move what was there, you know? So that then became a very fascinating point of view to me globally on the ancient engineering, as it were, and how these mineralogies of stone that we're yet to master today. And when, when we're speaking of that, you've got what's called a Mo scale with interstone, as you're well aware, Derek. And when you're working with things like crushed granite and granite, fair enough, but andesite, when you're working with andesite, there's only one thing that's cutting directly into that at the top level. And you would say diamond, wouldn't you? But even then, if you took drills from today and you tried to use, I don't know, like a, an actual chainsaw that had diamond tips on it, just through granite, it needs water, it needs hydraulics, it needs logistics, it needs JCB to construct it, you need avenues to buy it. There's a lot that goes in before you even start cutting that stone and that block in that way. So what? how were these ornate marvels? And when I say that, let's look at somewhere like, I don't know, the British Wara Temple in Tamil Nadu in India. I mean, these are temples that are absolutely magical to look at. 
how were they cut placed with the same stonework hallmarks where we'll see nubs different variations of polygonal stonework and so on and so forth it absolutely blows my mind that these hallmarks are global and worldwide you know so yeah i find it um intriguing that not only you and I look at this, but now there's a huge community within Twitter that are looking at these global hallmarks and how they apply to the ancient world. But I think when we started to write the statement of significance, the SOS to uh, the European Antiquities Department, we started to realise that there's a, a big a big niche in the market for people actually realizing that there is something going on directly in our ancient past we don't realize that was the fascinating thing to me derek what are the secrets that we're held was alchemical science you know something that was prevalent at that time and we're looking at sciences in a different way people use that analogy of the g in geometry wasn't even invented well it was because when you look at the symmetry of the pyramids and what's encoded in the sacred geometry not only at the plateau but globally we've got to look at you know things a little bit differently and with that in mind i started to try and encompass frequencies and archaeoacoustics of these temples to see whether we could amalgamate any um corroborating evidence throughout these temples worldwide to see whether then we could see anything that really incorporated these ancient technologies together which i'm sure the results of you'd find absolutely intriguing so and what we've looked at with the institute just recently is the application of archaeoacoustics to these ancient sites and what we've got with that is multiple papers globally. And they haven't, these researchers haven't just been going with small teams like myself and this sort of 18 or so that I work with. These have been actual European country efforts where top researchers, I suppose my team is actually global like yourself, but these guys have gone away and they've tested archaeoacoustics on certain sites. We've looked at Newgrange, the Hypogeum at Malta, We've gone across the Grapparello Castle in Italy. And the interesting thing is that all these, well, Bot Newgrange, which is its own original site, the studies that we looked at there of archaeoacoustic split, because it's an archaeoastronomical site that people look at at star alignment, but the studies that suggest that these rooms were kind of almost used as specific frequencies. You had what's called an oracle chamber at the Hypogeum in Malta. And specific frequencies in that room were different than, say, next door, where it sounded like a different language was being professed. Now, we've also looked into studies where 200 metres away, and that's a huge distance, that they could use synthesised stones to actually incorporate frequency through 200 metres away into another room and they could hear it just as clear in that room as they could. Now, what we found on these tests is the people that are writing the papers are given specific conclusive evidence on what the frequencies were within these rooms. Now, we went across to, well, it's a couple of weeks ago now, to Grapparello Castle in Italy, where fundamentally the ancient site was built on a magnetic vault that had Roman towers built on it after and thusly as a castle. 
and there was a trident of frequencies. What that means is three specific frequencies that you can correlate from Newgrange to the Hypogeum to the then now Guaparello Castle. So three different sites with exactly the same different frequencies that could be applied. Now, when these sites, and I use the word loosely and I surmise functional, where they're not sat static now and by functional, what I mean is you could simply add water to any of these sites, which is vibrational and acoustic. And what we look at on every single ancient site globally, and I'm sure you know this, they've all been built on an ancient riverbed or a river system. You would suggest that that would be to survive. However, I disagree, not only just to survive, but when you look at the mineralogies within the stone, the encompassing hallmarks that they built, you're looking at huge granite blocks, massive, massive weights put together, sometimes 200 tons on angles. And I'll give you the example of that, the doorway at the Great Pyramid. You've got 2,356,000 blocks that surround an engineering building over a mastaba that's been terraformed up to 11 and a half meters tall. Now, if you want to protect an engineering system, then you would do it with said blocks. Now, what was that engineering system? And millions of people surmise this, Derek, but there was definitely water. So we know that's an equational end. It was definitely there. We know that pre-dynastic Egypt worked pretty much in harmony. If you were going to infiltrate that system and you were kind of like a 007 at the time, and as it's written, Egypt was infiltrated. Now, how was it infiltrated? All you would have to do is block up a couple of water systems if it was frequency orientated. If the portcullis chamber at the north side of the king's chamber was actually functional, you've seen it yourself. It's got a standardised semicircular nub on the one panel that's remaining. I will surmise that there were other shape nubs, as we can correlate worldwide, square, triangular, and uh, rectangular. I suggest, because you can't see any vitrification up there, it's you don't see water damage. I'm suggesting compressed air could have been a function. And if you were using compressed air alongside water and you were producing a frequency that, as has been described by paper writers uh, recently, that a bass note would have played up to 900 kilometres away. Well, that bass note, 900 kilometres away, if you had specific quarries and so on and so forth that were reliant on magnetism through the mineralogy of stone and you were using vibrational techniques when um and I, i'll digress back to guaparella castle when the gateways were actually looked at above this hypogeum underneath they had what was called like circular magnetic vortexes on gateways that you could actually measure through tvr cameras which are very difficult to get access to they look at you know the uh, spectrum behind uh, frequency and you can actually see these vortex systems now if you were applying that Derek to something like the Giza Plateau and it was a baseline that somehow was played frequency wise that you could modulate and you could apply magnetism and vortexes around a pyramidal system 
if you've got magnetics and you've got a plus and a minus system, one end is that plus, you would be able to literally have a stone of any weight stuck next to it because of rotational magnetism, and you could push it into place. And that would all be due to frequencies and how you would adapt and modulate those frequencies. And it, and that's not just me saying that. This is hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of papers that document that and you know like even tesla himself said if you apply oscillation to magnetism you, and apply that you would maybe be able to control a vortex system well he's not far off the truth if you look at this mineralogy content within specific stones globally we're actually seeing nubs globally we're seeing magnetics now and we're seeing frequencies that are corroborating each other I think it's something that should be globally studied, and that's why we opened the Institute, Derek. Yeah, the archaeoacoustics is something that's really fascinated me. You brought up the hypogeum there. I think that's one of my most favorite sites I've never visited um, in Malta. And if people aren't aware of the hypogeum, uh, just do a quick Google search, um, hypogeum Malta. And what amazes me about this site is Malta is so ancient, right? But you've got this subterranean structure that goes like three levels down. Not only did they find these elongated skulled uh, people or humanoids in there, but this thing is literally cut three stories deep and has these archaeoacoustic chambers that, um, according to you and others that have really done some research, I mean, the thought is that it would literally transfix the ancient inhabitants inside, right? Yeah. And not only that, they were able to almost induce specifically through frequency. And you've got what's called infrasound at a low level. So you can't hear that. You and I can't hear that. However, that infrasound was playing all the time, and they had what's called in the hypogeum a niche. Well, to you and I, that niche is like a large nub. And what that did when sound was playing, it actually reverberated it to the outside of the building in different chords. Now, they've done the tests on that recently. They're up-to-date tests. That's not us making that up. And they suggest that in different rooms, Derek, that with different frequencies, different people have different experiences dependent on who they are. Well, let's just take that for what it is. If you and I were able to go into one room and you and I were engineers and a specific room told engineers how to learn, another one, you know, say your professor, for argument's sake, that was teaching you to the next level, went into another room to learn from where he was. That's where he got his learning. And you could modulate that frequency. It seems a lot more feasible that there was an educated way of learning through frequency and modulating that frequency and magnetics through stone, which is why they applied such heavy stones to the ground, because they were actually using the magnetics of Mother Earth to produce those frequencies and then modulate them. And what we're seeing in the research is this kind of like uh, what we can hear in between 28 and 38 uh, megahertz, uh, hertz, sorry, that was very prevalent. They could almost boom it out of the building and they struggled to subdue that noise within the hypogeum. And I don't know whether you know this, but the hypogeum itself is literally limestone. 
Whereas all the other kind of frequency orientated buildings are or seem to be reliant on specific mineralogies within the stone, within the said quote unquote hypogeum or Acropolis, as they then go on to say, because we did a, a last week on Sunday, we uh, studied a, an actual town called Altari in Italy. Now, the town itself, Derek, is actually surrounded by Cyclopean-style polygonal stonework. Yes. Now, do you, do you get what I mean? Now, if you were trying to modulate a frequency and you, you'd you seen maybe prior, I'm just surmising, stonework that was like of a megalithic-style polygonal, and you were trying to copy it or modulate it further so there might not be that much distance in time but you were trying to modulate and then you surrounded your town with it you modulated the frequency so within the town your people a had a c and an f chord that made them feel better about themselves the people that were going to learn at said temples had different classes they could go into with learning things like that i surmise that these areas could use those frequencies as states of awe and states of fear because opposing armies tried to get towards Guaparello Castle and it said that opposing armies got towards it and felt so scared or were actually hallucinating within their minds that they didn't want to go anywhere near it. Now, that would mean, and I know this is a bold statement, that, you know, the bows and arrows, the swords and the hard men weren't really that applicable. It was actually the the people that sounded the horns and banged the drums and got the frequencies actually reverberating could have stopped the oncoming armies. Now, you know what? That could have been how the old world worked to their temples, Derek, and I know that's an alternative point of view, but it's something to be looked at because the evidence suggests it, you know? Yeah, and on that note, um, I mean, what you just shared there about that castle reminds me of examples we have in ancient literature. I'm thinking of the Bible uh, where they're talking about, you know, the Israelites marching and they go seven times around. You know, they blow the trumpets and the walls of Jericho come down, right? Which Jericho was, you know, one of the largest ancient cities of that time but when you really kind of just take a step back and look into this you know this account these walls were brought down with with sound waves right it was a certain key probably a frequency they didn't have to have you know devices to tear down the walls they just needed the frequency and they came crumbling down so it's crazy this world of archaeoacoustics and i love how you're telling us it there were so many multifold purposes for it. Um, let me ask you this, Phil. Do you believe that in archaeoacoustics um, were also partly how they built these impossible walls? I think in their original state, I think it was absolutely the case that magnetics, frequency, use of modulation, oscillation, and controlling that magnetics was definitely prevalent to me because you only have to look at the specific mineralogies within the stone that we see globally that we literally wouldn't incorporate today the way we do we use frequency and we use sound in a different way today it's more of a handheld device or something you can take with you where 
I think it was done on a build scale to the nth degree in ancient times that it was actually a global encompassing engineering feature that people worked together on and it allowed their their areas people to go and study with other areas more fluently and easily in fact to the point i think where families allowed offspring to just go and study in other areas a lot more freely we see all of a sudden um maybe more towards a mini mini ice stage or the so-called four thousand year ago cataclysm four thousand bc cataclysm almost seems like a war in nations started after this that a prevalent technology quote unquote could have been taken well hey you 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 mentioned the bible you've mentioned writings look at a technology like the ark that could have been taken and it's written that technologically look it's in relative if we find the frequencies again because what this trident of frequencies suggests is that we actually can go and test them scientifically and where i've laughed online before i think i may have said it to you it'd be lovely to find you know like a dead sea scrolls of engineering somewhere unfortunately that's never going to happen but is it is there going to be one of these rooms that we consider a void at egypt or you know an empty room in india at one of these temples if the correct frequencies are played do you then as the individual person get an experience where and let's be honest we've got what's called uh, 3d virtual reality where we put a headset on we hear and we see a specific frequency that's given to us. Well, why couldn't that have happened in ancient times? We've already suggested earlier that if me and you were speaking in adjacent rooms 200 metres away, due to how the stone was placed underneath, we could hear each other in those corresponding rooms. So why couldn't other encompassing engineering have happened? And I'll go as far as to say I do actually think if you could modulate these trident of frequencies that we've found or parts of it not the infrasound i think that infrasound could have been used as i've said as awe or fear so you allow people to come you don't and i think you could modulate that as simply as with specific crystals and if you look at the amount of quartz crystal that's on certain areas you might have only needed a crystal pendant of that area to walk on and that fear of awe so-called frequency wouldn't have affected you however Within where you could adapt and modulate your specific area or castle or megalithic site or temple or whatever to your area's frequency, I think you could have actually kept people away from you. Now, if you take away the water supply from that area that's actually exposing the vibration, the magnetic technology and so on and so forth, the frequencies that were actually playing I think you actually dysfunction, you stop functionalizing that area, you know? Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, in India, how many master masons did they have? From Tamil all the way across to the the entire north of the Himalayas, where we cross cross uh the himalayas to the tamil basin um sorry to the chinese basin where the tarim mummies actually are all the way into russia where you get to 
Kunea Sharia, we see this same global application of stonework, mineralogies, application of said mineralogies, and it doesn't stop. It goes all the way through America. It goes all the way to South America. The same nubs are found with polygonal stonework in Olente Tambo as we find in Warangal, only on a smaller scale, in India. So what was the same thing that was going on everywhere that all of us were doing. I think we were incorporating some kind of archaeoacoustic that was actually beneficial or not to the people that came near that area. And that's my proposed theory on the archaeoacoustics. I think it was a hell of a lot more than just bringing people to church to pray. I don't think that at all. I think that's happened over time and I'm not going to go into religion, um, but I think then it was used in a different way, in my opinion. I don't know if you saw one of my latest videos. I created a short video about the unfinished obelisk in Aswan at, in Egypt. That, to me, is one of the greatest examples when we're talking of ancient history, what I would call one of the smoking guns of uh, lost ancient technology, whether that was a tool or whether that was some kind of just archaeoacoustics, you go up to the unfinished obelisk, and there's actually a couple of them in that core. That's just the biggest one. It's 1,200 tons. And you can see the mainstream theory, let me preface it, the mainstream theory is that this was chiseled out with sharp rocks, right? And this... This this uh, obelisk is, you know, this massive rectangle. It's made of rose granite, extremely hard, at least a seven on the Mohs scale. And they want us to believe that workers were just chipping away with sharp rocks. And it's crazy to go there and see a demonstration of this. Our guide, Muhammad Ibrahim, um, was pounding on a rock for like five minutes straight and as hard as he could with every technique and he all he got was a little scratch out of the rose granite right and so it makes you realize what a complete um i guess lie if you want to say we've been given when you get to these sites like you and I do you touch them and you realize and i love how you're bringing up the geology and the minerals right these ancients knew so much more about the earth and the magnetism. And so they didn't need to blow stuff up like we do with combust, you know, combustion engines and dynamite. They, they could holistically tap into it so easy. And again, the unfinished obelisk, I think definitely archaeoacoustics was playing a role there because once they cut these things out, how in the world did they get them transported eight hours plus via car to to the great pyramids right it's crazy to think about the mystery that we could look at there and it's the trilithon stones isn't it of baalbek in lebanon and when you've got the stone of the pregnant lady and people say oh they were never meant to move that well yeah of course they were because the trilithon stones are all round baalbek and then what you actually see is bevel blocks above the trivial tri the trilithon stones we see triangular nubs around the south face which jj ainsworth found on her video um we've had 
multiple different hallmarks and changes of the guard over Balbec. But the one thing that stands fast is they were going to move a 1,200 a ton, let's put that into context, up a hill, place it up over the top of the other Trilithon stones, or even more than that, move it round and place it somewhere. Now, that was done it's actually there. So the equation tells us it was there. Now, you've got to look at the mineralogy of the stone and or whether the Romans, and I did a degree on this and got more or less a first in this avenue on the research because I went against the narrative and said the Romans do not actually describe anywhere that they lifted the Trilithon stones. In fact, they say that they attempted to and gave up that they couldn't. They made coins on them. They actually show on the coin that the Trilithon stone is in place and they couldn't move it. So they moved Baalbek around and they obviously inhabited it. They took over multiple global world sites. They, you know, almost, I don't know, they they assimilated cultures rather than and took over their inhabitations they didn't necessarily always build them the romans were more red brick they didn't ever say oh we profess to have done the megalithic blocks and yes they did sort of variations to the bevel blocks but in my opinion i don't think they did the bevel blocks at lebanon at all it doesn't match anything that I've done in Rome, although you get some bog standard kind of very non-ornate bevel blocks around the Colosseums and so on and so forth. Rome didn't profess to do that, you know, and I could show you a thousand different sites with bevel blocks and also quite a lot that Rome didn't make it to. You know, Coricantia, the Romans didn't make it to, so they didn't do all bevel blocks, did they? You know, so where people say, oh, it was Rome, it was Rome, it was Rome. Well, no, it wasn't. And did Rome actually use archaeoacoustics? Yes, they did, because what they did was take an already existing ancient archaeoacoustic set of not only alchemical, mathematical, geometrical, you name it, set of, I mean, they they took it from the Etruscans in their own you know, genre within Italy, the Etruscans actually offered them the alchemical uh, sciences. And they said, no, we know better than you. We can make Roman stone. We can make Roman cement. We don't need the old ways. And they got rid of it. And what or did they? And is it under the Vatican? Another argument, another podcast. <laughs> However, yeah, yeah. Um, it, 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 the fact that they then went out and built cathedrals, churches all over the ancient world and actually adapted those archaeoacoustics says to me that before, and I'm not saying for the right or the wrong, we'll just leave it at, I think in a prior age, these archaeoacoustics we used very, very differently, Derek, than they are now and applied in a different way. And what we can say is if you were applying archaeoacoustics to your engineering and at the level you and I go and see worldwide, then this was no fluke because some of these paper writers say, oh, it was fluke that, these archaeoacoustic properties were found. What they aren't doing or wasn't doing was looking at the global aspect and whether it correlates to other areas. Now, you know, fortunately for us, these archaeoacoustics do actually correlate. 
and you get what's called um it's the pyramid bass notes i don't know whether you've seen it you've obviously heard of the pyramid tunes when these were functional when there was the nile that was nine and a half miles back and it was right outside and all the subterranean levels like gcf1 the serapium the assyrian the underneath of the great pyramid itself whether you know um the pyramid of menkare which holds nubs itself on the exterior bottom third that you've kindly photoed yourself you know you've seen these hallmarks you've actually seen and probably heard the archaeoacoustics around the pyramids that that actual feel of awe when you're there you know that wow look at where when that goes what if there was a bass note a reverberation that did actually make you feel good so that feel good factor was natural to the area I'd go as far as to say on some of the research when these archaeoacoustics are used properly if not turned up to the highest standard of, say, you know, 4,000 hertz or whatever, and it was used at a more, you know, human level of like, say, 38 hertz, 30 hertz, and the infrasound level was controlled, it's actually said to have helped the environment around it. So then, could that have been why the plateau was lush and green, you know, before it was desolate and not used? Was it then functional, as people suggest? And was it functional just in a slightly different way? And was it functional to the people that used it, you know, like all these sites could have actually been? And I think when you study these trident of frequencies that we're finding, they're incorporated all over the place. It was no fluke. And it's global as well. Well, it's becoming global as we're adding these trident of frequencies globally, you know, Derek, it's absolutely insane, the application of it alongside the hallmarks. You bring out so many great points there, Phil. I was just chatting with Hugh Newman not too long ago. He was saying the same thing about um, Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe there, that according to his research of the archaeoacoustics and, and just how that was affecting the farming and and making their crops yield and, and and again so it's that same theme of these ancients knew more about how the the earth operated and they could tap into that they didn't need chemical think, spraying and all this uh, stuff right and i think uh, you mentioned in here there in gobekli tepe and karen tepe i don't know for those that are listening whether they realize this but karen tepe we're probably looking at here for want of a better word, a mega civilization. Not when when you look at just the T pillars at Gebegli Tepe and how tall they are, people don't realize how tall they are. They're enormous. They're absolutely enormous, hundred ton pillars. Now Karen Tepe is huge. This suggests a mega civilization that worked together for a specific reason. Fact, because it's there. Why? Now everybody suggests that it must have been archaeoastronomy now i agree to a certain extent and original research suggests that and i love Hughes' research on this actually just to beg a point but i i add to that the archaeoacoustics if it was prevalent if we can match similar tridents of frequencies or frequencies in general alongside the mineralogy then that corroborates without a shadow of a doubt that these ancient sites were incorporating archaeoacoustics to A, benefit the people, B, we can actually see now, according to Hughes' research, the prevalence of the archaeoastronomical 
uh, alignment features within these sites. Now, we're certain times of year, i.e. summer solstice, winter solstice, we both know, mate, that we weren't just looking up at the stars to plant crops. So we're specific conditions, i.e. when waters run faster, so then the archaeoacoustics would have been more prevalent in these areas. Say for argument's sake, it was colder, so waters weren't running. Do you understand my point? So if they were frozen over, then you would be able to see exactly when your temples were most functional for learning or adaptation or whatever it might have been, or, you know, say terraforming or whichever application you were using it for if they were multifunctional. Because let's be honest, if you were going to go to the trouble of building the plateau, it was for a specific reason to incorporate all this, not just to look at the stars, not just to pump water through a set of stones. There was an overriding engineering feature that incorporated logistics, engineering, how they got it, like you said earlier on, 900 kilometres, you know, specific stones to one place. You know, people look at how the Serapium stones were cut. Look, they're actually set into place around bedrock. How did they get in there? And if people say to me, well, yeah, well, the carvings over the... Forget the carvings over the top of them. Look at the boxes themselves. Forget the carvings. How did the bedrock get around them? Bedrock, how long does it take to form, Derek? And then you've got to ask yourself the question, how did that standard box get inside there unless there was some way to use vibrational technology? And then you could start speaking about different ways to adapt technologies within stone, couldn't you? Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the Serapium, one of my favorite sites to visit in Egypt. And uh, I got to give a shameless plug for our Egypt tour coming up this May, since uh, since Philip brought up the Serapium. But you, uh, for viewers, uh, listeners, join me in Egypt. Um, we're going to go into the Serapium and see these 20-plus massive 100-ton-plus uh, boxes, precision-cut and like Phil says, they are they're literally underground stuck in between the bedrock. And so um, mainstream wants us to believe that an army of thousands of men transported these down, which there wouldn't even be space for that an army like that to move. And so we're going to see those. We're going to have a private tour inside the Great Pyramid. It is literally going to be the adventure of a lifetime you can go to um stargatevoyager.com slash tours for all the info and you can even lock in the uh, early bird rate for another couple weeks so phil um we're out of time today is there any closing thoughts you have and what's the best way people can uh follow you and connect with you well if you go and have a look on spaces at nine o'clock every sunday evening we're um the we're on there every night, uh, every week. Uh, Ancient Alternative View on YouTube and on Twitter. And I'm sure you can find me on your posts here and there, sir. I would love to come with you in England next year. I'm here anyway, so to come and meet you for the day when you're over here or as long as you're over in England, I would love to get some time with you uh, when you're over here this year. Uh, that would be amazing. And I think it would be great for everyone to see researchers working together like you and I and that our castle doors aren't shut 
to everybody else that free thinkers are, do actually speak together and that we're not against each other and that we can actually speak. And I love it that you've had me on tonight. And I'm so glad that you've gone worldwide and actually exposed a lot of these hallmarks. It's made my work, uh, you know, a lot, a lot easier to have someone like you around so i thank you very much for your hard work it's been an absolute honor to meet you this evening it really has yeah it would be great to try to um connect in england so as that trip gets closer we'll uh we'll connect and see if we can't make that work that would be awesome and thank you phil for your research at ancient alternative view on twitter on x on youtube give phil a follow and um, go go check them out on Spaces and see all the research they're doing. And um, Phil, thank you just for uh, spending an hour with me and downloading all your uh, knowledge. Man, you're a wealth of knowledge. And I was really excited to hear about your thoughts on the archaeoacoustics. There's so much there. And I'm just excited. These are exciting days to live in where it's like, our research is helping peel back the uh, layers of deception and people are realizing, man, there is so much more to history than I was led to believe. And uh, as I like to say, the further we look back, it's like the better it gets. Right. And I look forward to meeting you again. And hopefully we can podcast on uh, the, um, the Institute for Natural Philosophy one day or on Ancient Alternative View. And I look forward to doing more work in the future with you, especially on site. I think the more of us that are doing actual experiments on site with reference to not only acoustics but documenting everything that we're finding and the community is getting larger and larger week in, week out. And uh, I'm just really pleased to... Um, to have met you and uh, hopefully we can meet again and do yeah. some more work together actually boots on ground you know thank you lovely to meet you we'll speak again soon all the very best all right the best thanks phil